this is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app or join our emailing list at coldwarconversations.com. Hello and welcome to episode 19 of Cold War Conversations. Firstly, I would like to thank all those who are supporting the podcast with monthly pledges via Patreon. It is very much appreciated and will allow us to expand the scope of the podcast. If you'd like to support the podcast further and get access to some exclusive extras, then go to our website at coldwarconversations.com and use the Patreon link on the homepage. The Able Archer exercise of 1983 is described as the most dangerous Soviet-American confrontation since the Cuban Missile Crisis. Francesca Akhtar has a BN Honours in American Studies with first-class honours from Canterbury Christ Church University in Kent and a master's degree in US history and politics from the Institute of the Americas University College London. Her main research interests are US Cold War foreign policy, intelligence history and defence. For her MA in US studies at University College London, Francesca submitted a thesis in partial fulfilment of the requirements of the degree, which was an analysis of the origins, nature and impact of the Abel Archer 83 incident. I am delighted to welcome Francesca Akhtar. Hi, Francesca. How are you this evening? Hello, Ian. I'm very well, thank you. It's good to talk to you. Well, it's very good to talk to you, and thank you very much for coming on uh, Cold War Conversations. Um, Abel Archer is uh, one of the subjects that comes up quite often, so I'm looking forward to uh, chatting with you about this. Yes, I'm I'm looking forward as well. Great. Can you uh, tell us a little bit about yourself? Okay, well, um, I was born in London. Um, I grew up in the 80s, uh, early part of the 90s. Um, So I don't don't remember 1983 particularly well. I think I was a little bit young, but I I remember quite well the closing stages of of the Cold War. Um, I remember the fall of the Berlin Wall very well. Um, I actually remember... Uh, coming home from school and watching it um, on, on Newsround. I don't. I don't know if you remember that. Program, I I do remember Newsround. Was John Craven still around that, then? That's right. I, I can't remember if he if if they had reporters kind of live at the site, but I, I am sure I remember that he was fronting the program. That's just something that really sticks out in my mind. Um, but I've always had an interest in the Cold War, uh, particularly on the US side, um, particularly kind of US history and politics. Um, So I ended up doing um, an undergraduate degree in um, American studies. And I sort of followed that up with a a master's degree where I focused more on the the history and politics of it. Um, I guess my main interest has always been US foreign policy, particularly in the Cold War. And currently I'm studying for a PhD and I'm I'm looking at um, defense and US defense intelligence um, during the Cold War. Great. Well, it sounds like I might have to have you back again. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So how how did you get interested in Abel Archer and the nuclear war scare of 1983? There's kind of a couple of 
of events that kind of seemed to kind of come together. Um, at the time, I was coming up to write my master's dissertation. Um, as part of my um, my MA degree, we had to write um, a 15,000 word um, dissertation. And I knew I wanted it to be on something related to US foreign policy, maybe intelligence. Um, and I'd been looking around for a few ideas. I, I kind of toyed with a few ideas that hadn't really come off. Um, and then I remember I was um, looking at the website of the National Security Archive um, in the US, which I'm sure you, you, you must know of them. Um, but they're fantastic. They uh, are, are an organization in the US that um, submit lots of FOIAs from the government to um, get declassified documents and they, and they put, put everything online for free. Um, and so I was thinking, you know, maybe, maybe that would give me some ideas. And um, around that time, uh, they had posted something to do with Abel Archer because um, the, the major US reports on Abel Archer had just been released after I think about 10 or 12 years of, of them trying to, to um, get it released. It was finally released and I thought, oh this looks really interesting. Um, and I, I think I'd vaguely heard of Abel Archer before but I, I didn't really know that much about it. And then also around the same sort of time um, in the UK, Deutschland 83 was, um, was, was being shown in the UK. Um, yeah. And that, 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 that kind of sparked my interest as well. And I thought, you know, I think this could be a really, really great topic. Well, I think you're absolutely right. So I'm looking, again, I'm looking <laughs> forward to talking about this. So um, in 1983 or the start of 1983, what was the US perspective on foreign policy, re the Soviet Union? We have uh, Reagan who comes in, who assumes the presidency in 1981. Um, he takes over from Carter. And so you have um, the period of really the, what's often called the second Cold War, um, the heating up of the Cold War again. And so you have the period in the 1970s where you had a period of detente, um, a sort of soaring of US Soviet tensions, um, but that kind of melted away. Um, by the by, the kind of late seventies, um, early eighties, and that had really kind of given way to um, sort of the resumption of old hostilities when Reagan became president, and um, he began to pursue, you know, a very big military build-up, which was um, the greatest in peacetime. Um, and so Reagan comes in. Carter was seen by some, particularly conservatives in the U.S., as being quite weak. Uh, especially as regards to foreign policy. And so Reagan comes in, promises a sort of a peace, peace through strength was his strategy of, of winning the Cold War. And uh, Reagan really promises to um, actively roll back communism um, worldwide, um, really, especially in places like Central America, um, rather than just sort of contain it. Um, and so you have a heating up, it's really sparked heating up of tensions again with the Soviet Union. Okay, and this is um, 79, the, is it 79 or 80 that the Soviets invade Afghanistan? I think it's 79. Yeah, that was in, that was in 79. Yeah. Um, so... I mean, actually... Go on. Yeah. No, no, I was going to say, I think, um, you know, I think it's often perceived that Reagan, that it kind of, um, it all started with Reagan, really. 
Um, but, but, but that's actually wrong because actually the kind of, um, it, it kind of started with Carter actually because um, under Carter towards kind of 79, um, they started kind of, um, kind of style operations against Soviet Union. So I think definitely Reagan comes in and, and it escalates. But, but, you know, really, I don't think it really started with him. Mm. Because, I mean, the Americans were arming the uh, Mujahideen in Afghanistan at this point as well, weren't they? That's right, yeah. Right, okay. Okay, and so why, why did the Soviets think that NATO was going to attack them first? Because this is the fundamental reason behind this war scare is that the, the, the Soviet Union believe that America's going to launch a first, first strike. I think there are really two facets to why the Russians thought that um, the West was planning to attack them. I think you have reasons that are specific to the able archer exercise itself, but then you also have the broader reasons, the kind of broader backdrop in which the exercise um, was taking place. So as regards able archer 83 um, specifically, um, you know, it was an annual exercise and it seems that in previous years, the exercise hadn't sparked these concerns before, but in 1983, there were significant changes um, to the exercise, features that occurred that hadn't happened before, and it's thought that um, th this is what really kind of caused the Soviets to think that the US might be um, plotting um, an attack against them. Particularly, um, so Abel Archer was actually part of a, a wider sort of umbrella of exercises called Autumn Forge 83, and it was like the conclusion, it was the concluding exercise. Um, and the, the exercise that was sort of immediately before that happened in September of 1983 was called Reforger 83. And that involved um, an airlift of 19,000 soldiers um, to Europe. And so this, this airlift took place in um, complete radio silence. And it's thought that this could have um, spooked um, the Soviets because according to their own military doctrine, this was one of their indicators um, that, that, the, that, they, that the enemy, i.e. the West, um, could be preparing for war. And we'll get into Operation Ryan um, later on, but that, that, that was one of the Operation Ryan indicators. Um, but also there were, there were other features um, that involved when the, there was a shifting of command from the permanent war headquarters to alternate war, war headquarters. And there was also the practice of um, new nuclear weapons release procedures. Um, and so when they were talking about this, when they were communicating about this, um, the, the, the sort of B-52 sorties were referred to as nuclear strikes. And so there's actually been a US Air Force report that's been declassified recently, um, which says that this could have caused some misunderstanding if it says if a hostile country was listening in. And we know that the Soviets were because they were actually um, monitoring the exercise. Um, another feature, which um, the, the US report that was released a few years ago, um, says that could have um, provoked Soviet uh, kind of concerns, was that um, the, Air, the US Air Force during Abel Archer 83, um, and I'm quoting here, actually practiced the nuclear warhead handling procedures, including taxiing out of hangars carrying realistic looking dummy warheads. So these were all kind of um, aspects that 
because it really kind of triggered concerns specifically um, in nineteen eighty three. Okay, and obviously there's a there's a build up to this. There's a background context of this as well because I I understood that the U.S. Navy were probing some of the Soviet bases, certainly around the Sea of Japan, um, and going to the lengths of, you know, doing practice attack runs on some of these bases to just see what their radar and what the defences would do. Yes, I haven't. Um, I didn't really look into that specifically um, as part of my dissertation. But yeah, they, from from about 1979 onwards. Um, the U.S. was sort of running psyops, and um, some of these um, started under Carter, as I mentioned. But you have also in um, May 19, May 1983, you have the U.S. Pacific Fleet, which um, was conducting. It was actually the largest exercise since World War II, um, and that was called Fleet X 83. Um, and so you have all these kind of. That was in the Kamchatka Peninsula. Right. So, um, yeah, and so, you know, these were these were perceived by the Soviets to be, you know, ex- extremely kind of aggressive. Um, and Seymour Hersh, the, the American author, has, has, has written on that, and he's described it as, um, I'm quoting it, a flagrant and almost um, inevitable error triggered by the aggressive fleet exercise. Um, and the demand of senior officers for secret maneuvers and surprise activities. So you have that kind of backdrop leading up to Able Archer. Yeah. But you also have, I think you also have like the, the, the more broadly speaking, um, there were specific changes to the US um, strategic nuclear doctrine that happened um, a few years before Able Archer, which I think contributed um, to the fears. Um, so you have, uh, and I think it's important to mention because um, I think when I, when I when I come across sort of articles in, in the kind of media about Abel Archer, it's, it's not often mentioned, but I think it's really important. Um, you have a presidential directive, PD PD fifty nine, it's called, which was signed by President Carter um, on the twenty fifth of July, nineteen eighty. And so this was actually basically um, saying that the U.S. believed a nuclear war could be could be actually winnable. Um, and so the the report that was um, released in 2015 by the um, by the President's Foreign Intelligence Advisory Board um, in the U.S. they actually state that they think the Soviets had interpreted PD-59 that it was actually preparing that they think the Soviets had interpreted it as preparing um, U.S. strategic forces for a preemptive strike. And really, they they say that it could have exacerbated the Cold War tensions within, with the Soviet Union um, because this, this was a new nuclear strategy that was really intended to um, increase the readiness of the U.S. forces to carry out a preemptive strike. Um, against the Soviet Union. And this really strongly influenced subsequent war planning um, in the US. And th- this was the time when KAL 007 was shot down as well, the Korean airliner, because wasn't that over Kamchatka that that got shot down? Yeah, I think that, I think that was. That was, that was actually, um, so PD-59 was signed in uh, 1980. So the KAL shootdown was actually, um, was actually not, not that um, 
took place in September 83, so it was relatively, um, you know, only a few couple of months really before Abel Archer. And apparently it strayed into Russian airspace. And um, I think it's, I, I've read various kind of theories about why that happened. And I think it, I, I've read um, that, it, that it could have been because the navigational equipment was faulty. Um, but yeah, basically the KAL 007 um, was, a, was an airliner that was going from Anchorage um, in the US to Seoul. Um, but for some reason it deviated from it, its original route um, and straight into Soviet airspace. And the Soviets thought it was a, a spy plane. And this was really because previously, you know, in the weeks leading up to it, that the US had been conducting um, kind of operations in that area so they thought it was another spy plane um basically right um so the, the soviet shoot it down um there are 269 people on board um everybody is killed um and i think it's really one of the incidents that really um does the most to damage u.s soviet relations in that period uh president reagan you know really comes out and strongly condemns the attack he calls it barbaric and a crime against humanity. Um, and the, I think the, the, the Soviets actually denied <laughs> sort of that they had done this for about five days. Um, and then they sort of admitted that they had. But well, that's think, the I think, didn't the, the US, one of their listening posts has recorded the radio traffic between the Soviet fighter pilot and his ground control. Um, Yes, I think that came out later. I think that came out later on. Right. Um, yeah. But it's interesting because um, there's a CIA historian called Benjamin Fisher who's written on Abel Archer and who's written on um, incidents like KAL 007, and he says that it touched off a dangerous incident um, in U.S.-Soviet relations, and I think that really did quite a lot to damage. Yeah. Um, also because. Um, the Russians kind of perceived it that that Reagan was kind of using this incident as a way to sort of further his defence initiatives at home um, because um, Benjamin Fisher, who's, who's written a report on, on Abel Archer, says that he, he basically used the, the incidents to persuade Congress to support his request for increased defence um, spending. And this kind of ruffled the Russian feathers even more. Um, and it, it kind of had a, an overall effect, really, of kind of shutting down any debate that was, you know, that, that in the Soviet Union about Russian, about, about, sorry, about American intentions yeah. towards them. And also Reagan's ratcheting up, you know, he's using this evil empire phraseology yeah. well. Um, Star Wars, was that round about the same time as well? Yeah, that was in um, that was announced publicly on the twenty third of March, nineteen eighty three, and um, that was that was definitely perceived by the Russians as a very aggressive move um, by the US. By you know, it's interesting because it it kind of demonstrates really to what extent there's a great misunderstanding of both sides' intention, both sides' in, intentions. Because the Reagan, you know, Reagan thought that was promoting it really as a, def as a defensive measure, but that was not how it was perceived by the Russians. They perceived it as, a, as an offensive measure. Um, yeah. And, yeah. and that it was kind of evidence that, that uh, the US was really 
thought that they could you know win a nuclear strike that they were perhaps that that perhaps um they were planning that yeah. but i mean sdi star wars was, was also highly criticized in the us because um you know it, it was it was perceived that it was actually destabilizing the um you know, mutually assured um, destruction doctrine so it was never really it was never actually implemented in the end yeah so in the soviet union uh brezhnev dies in 81 is it 82 um, I yeah can't. i think and, I and, remember, but I think um, um, Andropov comes in in sort of the autumn of 82. Yeah, but by the time of Abel Archer, he's not a well man. No, he isn't. He was, he was suffering from um, kidney disease. So kind of at the height of Abel Archer, he was actually in hospital. Um, he, he, he was um, very ill. And there's been speculation that that's actually, you know, that also contributed to the kind of Russian misunderstanding of the incident because he, yeah. he was not a well man. Yeah. So the the Russians have a operation to, you know, try and find out when a first strike is going to happen. And that operation is called Ryan or Ryan. Yeah, I believe it's actually, it's pronounced Ryan. Um, sorry, it's spelt Ryan, R-Y-A-N, but I believe it's, pronounced on Rian. Um Yeah, so that was actually a program um, set up by the Russians, I think in 1981, um, to basically search for indicators that the West was, was planning to attack them. Um, so they have all these indicators um, that the Russian agents abroad in the, what they called residencies abroad, for example, in London, they were tasked to report back to Moscow um, these indicators that might that might indicate whether um, whether the West was, was planning to um, to attack them. So it was launched in May 1981, and um, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna attempt to um, pronounce the Russian what it stand, what RIAN stands for, but it, but basically in English it's nuclear missile attack. Um, so it was actually Brezhnev who was then um, the Soviet leader um, and chairman of the KGB, together with Andropov, announced the details of, of the meeting. Mm-hmm. Um, so they basically say that the highest priority would be given to collecting information um, regarding US-NATO political and strategic decisions um, regarding the Warsaw Pact. But I think um, I think so often when opera- Operation Ryan is mentioned. You know, it's mentioned that it was a program to search for indications that the West was planning attack. But I think what's often not mentioned is the fact that, yeah, it, it was about that. But it was also um, about the fact that it had a it had a, a, an aspect that was um, pre- promoting a preemptive strike so that if they found what they thought were indicators that the West was planning to attack them, that, that they would launch a preemptive strike. And this is what the report, the US report that was released in um, 2015 states that they believe that, that actually the, the, there, are, there were indications that, um, the, that the Russians were, <coughs> were planning maybe a preemptive strike. Right. And what, what were the indicators that Rian was looking for? I mean, what, how, you know, what, what were their sort of triggers okay so basically um there were different different areas that the agents abroad were kind of tasked to look for so you had 
um, political, um, economic, military sectors, um, civil defense. So basically, um, particularly in the US and the UK, um, they were tasked with keeping a very close eye on British government institutions. So for example, they, they would be tasked um, to take close note of what was going on in government buildings, for example. I mean, some of it sounds quite comical. Um, that they were they were told to watch for the number of lights in the windows at night, for example, in Whitehall, because if if there were a lot of lights on in, in Whitehall buildings late into the night, that that could indicate that um, there were meetings going on that they might be planning for a nuclear war. And um, one of the one of the um, one of the people that I'll mention it later that that speaks in the documentary to do with Abel Archer. And, says that they sort of failed to realise that it could actually be, be because it was um, it was the cleaners <laughs> that, were, that were actually working, not that they were they were in there at, late at night because they were planning a nuclear, nuclear um, attack. Um, also, they were tasked to monitor the level of, of, of blood in blood banks because they thought that if for example, there was a sudden stockpiling of blood supplies that this could indicate um, that, that they were preparing to, you know, that the West was preparing to, to, you know, to, to, to go to war, basically. But again, there was a misunderstanding also on the part of the Soviets, the fact that in the UK, um, blood donation is voluntary. So, um, Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week. To be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War, as a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. They, were, they said that they would, you know, that they would have to keep it on the price, monitor the prices of blood, but they didn't realise in the UK that blood donation is actually monitoring. You know, it's another example of the fact that they they weren't um, they weren't necessarily <clears throat> being very accurate in the intelligence that, that they were collecting, and that's actually been one of the criticisms is that, and one of the reasons why the, the Soviets got it wrong and that they thought that the US and the West was was planning an attack against them, even though they weren't, because Andropov was a, kind of a, he's often described as being this paranoid figure, um, and he was requesting. This war intelligence all the time, but he, he he but without the analysis that went that went with it. So even if some of the, the analysts abroad were saying, well, but we don't really think that the West is planning attack, it it seems that it wasn't really being listened to by him and by some of the high level leadership um, in the Soviet Union. Because I I was going to ask. I mean, obviously the the KGB and the Stasi would have had agents in NATO. Uh, at probably quite a high level, did they consider uh, any information from that? I know it's not an area of your expertise, but obviously, you know, there's 
uh, Reiner Rupp Topaz, who's the Stasi agent who's quite high up in NATO. That's right. This has been part of the problem in kind of studying the Abel Archer incident because there hasn't really been that much information available on the Russian side. Um, and that's been a criticism by, you know, there's not really a definitive um, agreement amongst historians or other researchers um, that have studied Abel Archer as to whether it was, you know, a genuine, whether the Soviets genuinely thought it was a war scare or whether it was just propaganda to try and deploy the, um, to try and, sorry, delay the deployment of the, of the Pershing missiles. Um, um, and that, that is a good point, actually, that there hasn't been that much information um, on the Russian side. But um, we do have some kind of, we don't have, re we haven't really had much access to archival information on the Russian side, but we do have some um, oral testament, oral testimonies. And um, Reiner Rupp has sort of said that, yeah, he he didn't, you know, that he was he was a spy. I think for about 25 years he was the spy of East Germany and NATO. And his boss was actually Marcus Wolf, who I'm sure you've heard of. Oh, well. absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so um, funnily enough, some of you know, apart from Oleg Gordievsky, who was the the um, KGB double agent who was working for MI6. Um, he's kind of considered to be the person that has given you know, most of the information about what was going on in the Soviet Union. Apart from him, some of the other information that has been released is really about Russian intentions is from the East German side. So you have um, Reiner Rupp, who was yeah, a very high-level spy. And he's, you know, in, in some respects, he's been a bit cagey about saying exactly what went on. Um, in some, you know, and on the other hand, he said, well, you know, I, I, I did warn them, but I think what happened is that um, even though people like Rainer Rupp might have, have, you know, passed back information to Moscow saying, I don't think there is, a, you know, the West isn't planning to attack, but I think there was, you know, there was a disconnect between what analysts were, were, were actually saying and what, what the high-level um, Russian leadership was believing. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, what state of readiness did the Soviets or the Warsaw Pact get to as as a result of this um, belief that you know a first strike was going to happen? Again, we like we don't we don't really know definitively because there's been that, this lack of information. I, I mean, I understand that the Russian archives um, and the archives of former Warsaw Pact countries are beginning to open up. Um, but we really, we really don't know. I mean, all we know really is that um, so Abel Archer took place on the seventh of November. It started on the seventh of November and it ended on the eleventh. We don't really know um, definitively why um, the threat kind of faded away um, because we just don't have that access on the Russian side. I mean, it, it's probable that Reiner up past information and said, you know, it's not an attack and then maybe eventually it was listened to. We don't really know. I mean, what's, what's, well, actually some new information that came out um, in 2015 when the US report was released. Um, there was um, uh, uh, an Air Force, um, I think he was a colonel, um, called Leonard Perutz, 
and he was sort of on the US side in the bunker and um, he decided not to um, raise the US alert level and the, the report uh, says that they speculate that he could have actually contributed to the exercise ending peacefully. But again, we still really don't know um, definitively. Because even from the, the US archive, I mean, presumably with Perutz, he was aware that there was an increased level of readiness from the Warsaw Pact side. So there must be, I'm, I'm presuming, some record in the US archive of satellite information or other information that shows an unusual level of readiness within the Warsaw Pact. Yes, I mean, um, what does come out in the, um, I should I should probably explain, the report that was released in 2015 um, was a report by the, it's called the President's Foreign Intelligence Advisory Board, and they're, they're basically a group um, of people that are, are kind of drawn from actually outside government mostly, I think, and to, to sort of provide an independent oversight of um, US intelligence activities. And... So this report was written under the um, in 1990. It was produced under the, the George H. W. Bush administration. Um, the report, the 2015 report, it doesn't really. I mean, it says that they 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 speculate um, basically that his actions in not raising the alert level could have contributed to Able Arch ending peacefully, but but don't really know why. I mean, I know. In the UK, there are there 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 are documents that have been released that um, that say that there are that there were signals intelligence reports um, suggesting that the Russians had moved to a high level of alert, but we unfortunately they're still classified, so we don't have access to that. And, and again, this is you know this, this has been part of the problem with with Abel Archer that a lot of information um, you know is, continues to still be withheld, unfortunately. Even that far back, I mean. <laughs> yes, I mean even the. And I know you probably ask about the UK um, size, but yes, and it, and it's very extremely frustrating um, for people like me that just want you know as full a picture as possible. Um, but the I think I think most of the information on the US side has been released. Um, the report that was released in 2015, I think the National Security Archive have been trying to get hold of that for, for a long time, I think maybe 10 or 12 years, um, and they finally relented and released it. But there's an equivalent re report on the British side, which was produced by the Joint Intelligence Committee, which is part of the Cabinet Office. And despite numerous attempts by researchers to, you know, by <laughs> who have submitted um, uh, Freedom of Information Act request, they still refuse um, to release it. And I think, you know, the reasons they give are, are basically national security. And, you know, I would question exactly what national security concerns there could still be. I mean, we're coming up to 35 years now. Yeah. And um, 35 years in November after the event. Um, for example, in, in the UK, the, the intelligence agencies are, are exempt from the Freedom of Information Act. Um, I think you, you've done some research into the involvement of the uh, Thatcher government in Abel Archer and the circumstances around it that, that aren't sort of like commonly known. Yeah, that's actually really, really interesting because, um, yeah, I think that is an aspect of Abel Archer that um, 
that isn't so well known. Um, so we, we don't have access to the, I think it's sort of the, the main um, report on the British side, which was produced by the Joint Intelligence Committee, because that's still withheld. But somebody managed to get um, released, it's about 10, 10 documents, um, mainly Ministry of Defence documents in 2013 that were released under the um, Freedom of Information Act request. And they really show, um, which hasn't really been known before, the, the involvement of the Thatcher administration. So they were really involved in the aftermath of Abel Archer, um, basically in advising the Reagan administration um, about what had nearly just happened. Um, because I think Reagan grasped the seriousness of, of what had happened, but it seems that the intelligence agencies didn't. Um, because you have national intelligence estimates that that um, from 1980, I think I believe it's early 1984, which were which were saying that they didn't really believe that the Soviets believed that there was a genuine threat, and they seemed to view that it was really Russian propaganda. They, they didn't take it seriously, um, and so you have the the British um, report which the one that we don't have access to, that was actually um, written before the US report. So the US report was, was produced in 1919. We have the UK report, which was produced in June 1984. But these other documents that we do have access to, they're, they're, they, were, they were produced in March to sort of April 1984. And it, and it really shows um, that the Thatcher um, government were really involved in trying to both um, persuade the Reagan administration to tone down its rhetoric and sort of change its its, um, its position on the Soviet Union and warn them via, via the information that they received from um, Oleg Gordievsky to say, basically, do you realise what nearly just happened, that the Russians thought that, you were sick, that the West was seriously planning to attack them? Um, but also there's discussion about ways in which that the way they might prevent um, misun such misunderstandings with the Soviets in the future. Um, it's really interesting. Um, there's a lot that's still redacted um, from the documents, and it's it's quite frustrating because you'll come across a line where it says, and you know, it might relate to Margaret Thatcher or her opinion, and you get to it, and you know, those few lines are sort of um, are sort of blanked out. Um, but although we don't have actual access to the UK report, those documents sort of indicate and suggest that also on the British side, they they sort of were coming to the conclusion that they did think that um, it could have been a serious incident um, and that it wasn't just Russian propaganda. Um, but it's also interesting because not only were there tensions between the US and the Soviet Union in 1983. There were also some sort of tensions um, between the UK and the US and um, between Thatcher and Reagan. And I think often it's, it's seen that the Thatcher-Reagan relationship, you know, they've gotten very well and they were always in agreement over everything. And um, that's, that's not actually true. They, they had quite differing pos um, positions and opinions on certain issues, particularly over nuclear weapons. Um, Reagan, um, and it's surprising to a lot of people that perhaps haven't studied Reagan, to because he presided over this huge military build-up when he came in, when he assumed the presidency, that he was actually a nuclear abolitionist. Um, he 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 didn't personally believe in the, the mutually assured destruction doctrine, 
whereas Thatcher actually did believe in it, did believe in deterrence, and she she actually believed that it, you know, provided a, a level of stability. So they had those different positions. But also, again, in the, in the run-up to Abel Archer, uh, you have the, the kind of special relationship was sort of strained um, by the time Abel Archer happened. So you have, obviously, the Falklands War the year before in 82, um, and Reagan, you know, could, did not, and the, and the Americans did not come out and publicly support Thatcher's position on that. But then you also had the US invasion of Granada a few months before Abel Archer, and Thatcher was really annoyed by that because um, Reagan didn't consult her. So there were, there were, there were also some tensions um, to do with that. Although, although ultimately, um, the UK and the US you know, despite whatever differences there might exist between between the, the actual leaders at the time, they kind of they kind of have to work together, and that's partly to do with you know all the intelligence sharing agreements that that, are, that have been in place since since the, the you know the end of the Second World War. Um, but but yeah, so um, it's interesting because in the US, the British opinions about Abel Archer were actually viewed with some skepticism by some by some members of the US government and um, some members of the State Department were kind of suspicious because um, and I'm quoting here from a document they say that um, um, there was a position subscribed to by some in the US government that, that the British Foreign Office was simply capitalizing on a good political occasion to force President Reagan to tone down his rhetoric and to and delay deployments of um, the INF missiles. These documents discuss the fact that the British particularly still believed um, that these exercises were important and that, that they didn't believe, despite what they thought had happened in Abel Archer, that they didn't recommend that um, these exercises be abolished, but that instead they, they were discussing ways in which they could perhaps warn the Soviets, perhaps in advance, um, of these exercises taking place so that it would perhaps demonstrate to them that these particular exercises kind of took place, you know, outside of the scope of any particular misunderstandings that might have occurred between particular um, leaders, you know, yeah. Soviet yeah. or US leaders. No, I was going to say, I mean, it's interesting you, you, you know, talking about Reagan as a nuclear um abolitionist because as you say he's not necessarily thought of that way i mean i remember the uh the cnd the campaign for nuclear disarmament posters um depicting him as a you know as a as a real warmonger um but i guess this this um realization that you know, they almost went to war with the Soviet Union. Is is directly puts him on the road to Reykjavik and his meeting with uh, Gorbachev and the INF Treaty. Yes, that's right. I mean, again, there's kind of some sort of disagreement between historians as to whether he was already on that road anyway, um, before even before Abel Archer came along, or whether it caused a complete shift. Um, there's a really interesting book called um, Reagan Reversal by uh, somebody called Beth Fisher. And she, she sort of argues that it really caused a complete turnaround um, in Reagan's foreign policy towards um, the Soviet Union. I would, I would kind of not go that far. I think it definitely brought home to him um, 
the, the danger of, of you know nuclear war but i think if you if you sort of read some of the the, the, the memoirs or what he said um mem former members of his um, administration they sort of say reagan was kind of going that way anyway um perhaps the able archer thing brought it home and and, and sped up um the process more quickly but it definitely had a very serious impact on him and if you read his, in his diary he sort of um although he doesn't um I believe he doesn't ever mention Abel Archer by name, and that could be due to reasons of secrecy and security. But um, I believe that that was what he was referring to. He says that, you know, did the Russians really think that we were planning to attack them because that wasn't our intention? And he does seem um, genuinely shocked. I'd also say, I think, um, you know, there's always been a perception of Reagan. I mean, I remember growing up, you know, the spitting image that was very popular at the time and Reagan was always um, portrayed as sort of a bit of a dunce really and sort of this good-looking actor that was actually quite sick didn't really know anything and that, I actually think that's, that, that's not true I think he was much um, cleverer than people give him credit to particularly on the nuclear issue I think he grasped the seriousness of what had nearly happened with Abel Archer you know before the intelligence agencies did the intelligence agencies were were really very highly criticised in the, um, the 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 US report for for completely um, misreading the situation, misreading the Soviet's intention. I think Reagan grasped it. Yeah, you know, yeah. much immediately. It's amazing the number of times you hear that phrase where you know the intelligence services have misinterpreted or misread yeah. the situation. I mean, you know, you can, you know. Well, I mean, you Iraq have war and yeah, weapons of definitely. mass destruction. <laughs> is there, I mean, aside from the areas that you've covered, is there any other area of Abel Archer and the, and the war scare that you think that people aren't aware of or anything that's really surprised you in your research? I think really uh, before I studied the Abel Archer incident, I hadn't really studied Reagan um, Particularly, I, I kind of focused more on the earlier Cold War and the Kennedy administration, and I was found that kind of fascinating. And yeah, I was, I was, um, I was kind of surprised, you know, about the fact that Reagan was, you know, actually not in favour of nuclear weapons, and that, that did surprise me because that's not initially the perception that um, that comes that comes across of him. And I think. After studying Abel Archer, I sort of come out with a slightly more favourable impression of him. I mean, I know there are things that happened under his watch as president, which which I don't agree with. I mean, um, you know, you have the whole Iran Contra affair. Um, mm. I think I think he was, you know, very. I think ultimately he was instrumental and he was important in in um, the whole relationship with the Soviet Union, the move towards detente. I really think he was. Mm. no that's really interesting well that's all my questions i had on abel archer but um okay. what i tend to do with my guests is i have a bit of a a quick fire round and uh the first question i've got on my list is uh what is your favorite cold war themed or cold war era film 
Oh, that's a really difficult to. That's really difficult to pick just one. You can um, name. Okay, you can have more than can one. Can I name a few? Okay, you can go um, on. Go on. It's not a that, rule. Okay, the one that spring that sprung to mind, and it's probably because it's something that I remember from my childhood. Is um, I'm a huge James Bond um, fan, and I think that might be partly due to my father, who was um, who was who was a huge fan of sort of the English spy. Um, Kind of novels and that whole, and he he was not um he, he was actually originally from Pakistan and he he sort of immigrated to the UK as a, as a young man and he then became a British citizen. But he was always fascinated with the sort of um, British Cold War, you know, British spying novels. So yeah. he, he would always um you know have have something on. To, there was always be James Bond film on the t- television. So um, I loved V to a Kill. Um, it was one of my favourite. Films. I think it's actually quite underrated in terms of Bond films. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know whether you listen to the Spybury podcast. Um, yes, I do, I do. But I think they a couple of people have rated View to a Kill. Yeah, but also the other one that I like, that I remember again sort of watching growing up, is uh, War Games, the, the original one with uh, Matthew The Matthew Broderick, Broderick one. That's right. I, I couldn't bring myself to watch the remake. Uh, I didn't know I they'd made they'd done a remake. To be honest, apparently they did. I think it was last year or a couple of years ago. And I'm really kind of against this. It seems to be a trend, a sort of a Hollywood trend lately that they'll remake, you know, great classics. Which I don't think it's that old, and they'll just remake it. And um, I think that's a really good film. And the, the weird thing, the kind of spooky thing about that is that. Um, you know, Matthew Broderick plays his character. He's sort of a genius whiz kid with computers, and he manages to hack into the sort of um, was it the kind of war kind of game, nuclear command, you know, um, system in the yeah. US, and, and 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 triggers you know triggers like this potential countdown. Um, and that was released. I believe it, it was released in the summer of 1983. So it was actually only a few months before Rabel Archer, but in some wow. ways it. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it kind of mirrored what actually happened, um, yeah. particularly the Petrov incident, which happened in September, where you know there was a false false alert that um, the, the the computers on the Soviet side were saying that the US had launched missiles towards them. Yeah, um, it's quite spooky when you think about it. Yeah, that is that is. And what what was your third one that you had in mind? The the other Bond film I like is um, Moonraker. Um, and I particularly remember that the, I think it's the opening scene where you have that um, the, the chase in the gondola in Venice. Yeah, I don't remember that, and uh, I find that quite funny. Yeah, um, no, I remember that one because <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm my mother's Italian. I'm half Italian, so that kind of made me laugh. Um, <laughs> but I think that's a brilliant. Um, I think the way that scene is put together and the way it's shot and the stunts, I think it's fantastic. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And if you were making a film about the Cold War, what piece of music would you have for the soundtrack? Again, I think I would, I would have to say, um, I think the theme to uh, View to a Kill, um, if you remember that, by yeah, Duran yeah. Duran. Yeah, yeah. I re- sadly, yeah. I remember Duran Duran. <laughs> yeah, I was, I, was, uh, I was very young, but I was, I was a huge um, Duran Duran fan. And uh, I was... So sort of had a, a huge crush on um, Roger Taylor and his, his lovely long hair, I remember. Um, but yeah, I don't I think, think you were alone there. 
<laughs> yeah, I, I remember this weird situation at my primary school where you were you were either it was this kind of pop group rivalry, so you were either like a Duran Duran fan or you were a Wham fan. And for some reason, um, I, I went to an all girls school. You weren't allowed to be both, so we we, we would kind of we would kind of stare at each other across the playground, you know. <laughs> but that's, a whole, that's a whole different Cold War you're talking about there. Yeah, that's, I don't know what that is, the cultural gold or I don't know. Um, but also, the, um, whenever I hear it, it just, it just really transports me back to that period, is um, Two Tribes by Frankie Goes to Hollywood. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, you have the opening with, you have that nuclear warning attack, kind of, um, I don't know where they yeah. got that from, but that's sort of that pasted onto the beginning, and I, I yeah. really remember that. Um, yeah, well, it's um, it's that actor Patrick Allen who voiced oh. all the uh, public information films they were going to put out in the event of nuclear war being imminent. Oh, right, okay. Um, you can find them on YouTube, actually. They are very eerie. The video of Two Tribes is very good as well because you've got this lookalike Reagan and lookalike Chernenko having a wrestling match. Yes, I think that that's also fantastic as well. Um, and I, I think Frankie Goes to Hollywood were, were ex- the, all of their videos. Are, I think were always really excellent and really on target. And yeah. you know, really spoke to the political situation at the time. Yeah. So um, I think I'm probably going to know the art or part of the answer to this, but you might surprise me um, if you could invite three personalities from the Cold War period to have a few drinks with, who would they be and what questions would you ask? Okay, so I would probably have to say um, JFK and RFK first off. Um, okay. I, I, I'd always been, you know, quite an admirer of, of them and the fact that I think, you know, they came from a very privileged, well-off background, but, um, you know, they, they didn't really have to go into politics. Um, they could have sat at home and just done nothing all day, really. Um, but I think really they were very passionate about um, trying to improve the conditions in the US for, you know, even, even the very poor. Um, and I think particularly, you know, we've just had the 50th anniversary of the Robert Kennedy assassination. Um, and I always remember that speech that I think is quite remarkable. I think it's probably my favourite speech um, of, of, of a politician, um, the speech he gives um, when um, Martin Luther King is assassinated. And uh, he gives this, this, this talk saying um, that he really, you know, that he knows basically what it's like to have somebody killed and that you know, he had a member of his family killed also by a white man. <laughs> I'm not going to get into that, that, that whole yeah. whether that's or not, but, but, but he's basically trying to, you know, he was speaking to a group of um, African-Americans and, you know, and, and saying that really we, we shouldn't fall into hate. Um, yeah. Kind of repeats that at the speech, you know, just before he's assassinated. Um, and um, I think I'd ask them, you know, I think I'd ask them really what their experiences, you know, what it was actually like having to deal with the, with the kind of aggressive military chiefs um, during the Cuban Missile Crisis when they really were wanting to go to war and, and yeah. Cuba. Um, I can't imagine what that must have been like, um, actually. Um, and the other one, uh, my third one, I guess, would be... 
Um, somebody, I don't know if you know of him, but uh, he's called um, David Atley Phillips. No, um, I don't. Okay, he was um, a spy that worked for the CIA and um, he was heavily involved in the Bay of Pigs operation and the um, previous to that, the uh, coup in Guatemala. And he was one of the CIA's top level um, so kind of covert action specialists. So he was involved with all this kind of covert action. And, um, he rose to become the chief of the Western Hemisphere Division eventually, which I believe is one of the, sort of the highest positions um, in the agency. And so he was actually involved in, you know, some quite aggressive um, operations, particularly um, to do with Guatemala. You know, that was a particularly aggressive. He, he, was, he was basically a specialist in propaganda. And I'd, I'd, I'd like to just get his views on you know, the, the kind of the inside scoop, whether he... And also whether he actually regretted anything of what he did, yeah. because what he was involved in in Guatemala really set set off kind of decades of you know civil war in the country and um, many people being killed. Yeah. And I mean, he did write an autobiography sort of in the late seventies, I think after he retired. But it's it's kind of more notable for what he doesn't say. Um, yeah, those biographies tend to be uh, yeah, a bit definitely. like that, don't they? They never tell you what you really want to hear. Exactly. I think they're, you know, they're very sanitised and put, putting, you know, obviously they want to be seen in, in, in the best light. But yeah. he, he's a very, very interesting character. And also there are allegations, which, you know, I won't get into that now, but there are allegations that he was perhaps involved in um, the, the, the JFK assassination. So he, he's just a very, very interesting figure. Mm. Oh, okay. Now you have surprised me because I I was almost going to put money on you having Thatcher, Reagan, and <laughs> Antropov, but uh, oh really? <laughs> okay. But but no, those are three very interesting, particularly um, Atley Phillips was his name. That's right. Yeah. David yeah. No, sounds sounds uh, really yeah, interesting. Yeah, look, look, look him up if you're interested in kind of the whole spy thing. He's a fascinating character. He really is. He's on my list now. Thank you for that. Um, are there any books um, or websites that you'd recommend around um, Able Archer? Oh, yes, definitely. I mean, the, the, the kind of the first one I'd, I'd recommend immediately. And I guess I think it has, you know, the most, it's kind of the definitive source on Able Archer is the, um, the collection at the National Security Archive. Um, and I, I, I have to give a shout out to um, Nate Jones, who's the um, he's the director of the FOIA project at the National Security Archive. But really, he's kind of I call him the guru, really, of Abel Archer, because he's really the one who, who, who started it all off and really did a lot of the early original research um, and got a lot of the early documents released. And, um, you know, as, as, as always pushed, you know, and it's still pushing. Um, to get more released and you know the national security archive they they are like a non-profit they're based at george washington university um Mm -hmm. in the us and they do a fantastic job you know they 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 they're able to obtain all these documents and they put most of it online for free and for me for somebody who's not in the us it's a fantastic resource so yeah um that's got probably the the best collection of it has all the declassified documents so it has the u.s report that i've mentioned you can download that um, and read it yeah because um, he has a book containing 
a lot of these documents as well, hasn't he? That's right. Um, I believe that came out in 20, towards the end of 2016. Um, yeah, called Archer 83. Um, yeah. yeah, that's definitely also worth reading. Um, yeah. There's also um, uh, the Wilson Center, um, which has some really interesting records on the East German records, actually. On They don't actually have records on Abel Archer because I believe that they haven't actually been released yet, but they have some really interesting records on um, Operation Ryan and the, the East German um, involvement in that. I can send you. I can send you the links to all of those. Yes, very much. Like mm. to see those. I was going to say, have you have you read the two books that came out this year on Abel Archer or on the War Scare of '83? Oh, which which ones are those? Um, oh, now you're asking. <laughs> um, <laughs> there was two. There was something like On the Brink. I think one was called. Um, ah, I believe that's. Uh, is that the Mark Mark Ambinder? Could be. There's two, and I can't remember the. Oh really. yes, there's, I think there's one by Taylor. Is it Taylor Downing? That's the one. Yeah. Yeah, I, think... I have not read it. It's on my list. Um, right. I believe he was a producer of um, the documentary, which I think. Yeah, I think Channel Four did a documentary of. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I've, I haven't. I've read that one. And oh, have I you? thought it is a good um, general reader into the subject. I think it's very good in terms of describing the circumstances and what went on. But I think okay. if you want more detail, then the Ambinder book is probably the better option. Right. Okay. Yeah, no, they are on my list. Um, there, there are a few that I've, I've noted down. Um, there's a really good book um, by uh, somebody called Peter Pry. I don't know if you've heard of him. No. But he was a former CIA, CIA officer who, um, at the time, he worked on kind of Soviet affairs and nuclear issues. Um, and he's, he wrote a book called, oh, I thought I'd written it down. I think it's called something like Soviet War Scare. Um, but that's a really great book if you want sort of um, more of an understanding of like the Soviet thinking and their kind of military strategy generally sort of since World War II and the fact that um, they were basically paranoid about a, a surprise attack basically since the end of the Second World War but because yeah. of the fact of Operation Barbarossa. And it's really interesting. It's really a great book for kind of understanding their military kind of thinking. Yeah. Um, there's also a really good book uh, called The Dead Hand by David Hoffman. I don't know if you know no, that one. No, That's, you're coming um, out with a load of extra, extra ones for my reading list now. Yeah, that's a really great one um, about the nuclear arms race. And um, he, he's a journalist who he worked as the um, Soviet bureau chief in Moscow um, for the Washington Post in um, the mid-90s. That's a really, really good one. Um, and also, I'm going to give a plug, and I'm biased about this one, I'm going to give a plug to one of my professors um, um, at UCL, um, at University College London, um, for a really great kind of general book on Reagan and his kind of character and how he kind of started out, um, you know, in his time as an actor. Um, it's called um, Reagan, American Icon, and it's by um, Ewan Morgan, who's a professor of American studies um, here at UCL. He's one of my professors and um, 
he teaches an excellent course on the US presidency, which I took when I, um, I did my master's degree. But um, that's a really good book if you want to kind of understand Reagan as kind of like the character. And Yeah, I think, I, d- I, d- I mean, speaking to you, I am understanding that the character of Reagan is more nuanced than perhaps I, I thought it was. So um, another one for my reading list. Thank you. No, you're welcome. Are there any films or TV series that you think are a good representation of 1983? I mean, I'm I'm sure you're going to mention Deutschland 83. Yes, definitely. Um, yes, I love Deutschland 83, and um, that was you know the fictional one, but it was it was pretty historically accurate. I believe the. Um, producers of the program they had sort of historians advising them so actually it's, it's pretty accurate and I believe that the character I can't remember his name now but the, the main character the the young man who's um, recruited to spy yeah. who's sent to West Germany to spy um, is, is based on Reiner Rupp is what I believe oh, really? okay. that's what that's what I've that's what I've heard um, yeah um, yeah that's excellent and um, even though it's kind of in German, and I don't, I don't tend to usually like watching things with subtitles, but um, you sort of forget after a while, actually. Um, if it's that good, yeah, you do. <laughs> yeah, you sort of did. I, I, I kind of hoped it would, because um, I, I studied um, German when I was at school, and I, I did a GCSE, and I, and I, I, I wouldn't say I got fluent, but I, I was quite conversational. And unfortunately, since then, I've, I've sort of forgotten. I haven't really used it, and uh, I was hoping I might remember quite. Some, some yeah. of my journey came back a little bit, um, not that much, but yeah. no, that was excellent. Um, in terms of factual programs, yeah, there's a really good documentary, um, the Channel 4 documentary, which you mentioned, called um, 1983 um, on the Brink of Apocalypse. I think it's been hard. I don't think it's actually been released on DVD. Um, I think it's on online. You can probably get it on YouTube. Um, okay. And that's from 2007. And that's really excellent because um, it features interviews with some of the people actually involved. So it has all Oleg Wojciechowski, um, Robert Gates, and you also have um, some of the KGB generals um, speaking on it. Right. So, okay. And it's, it's 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 great, really, as a kind of an uh, of an oral history, really, because we don't really have that much access to the Soviet archives, but we have their kind of testimonies and. Yeah. Um, those generals that they interviewed were saying, yeah, we really did think that, it, that the West was um, planning to attack us. So that's a great one. Yeah. Um, there's also a film called The Day After. I don't know if you know that one. Is that the American uh, drama with Jason Robards? That's right. Yeah, and um, that film is actually really important, and it's and it's kind of credited for for actually also having a, a huge impact on Ronald Reagan, um, because apparently he had a private he had a private screening um, before the public screening, and weirdly enough, the the public screening took place on November the fifth, which is two days um, before Abel Archer. It's just loads of these coincidences coming in here. Yeah, it is. It is very, very kind of strange, um, and it has some quite well-known actors, like you said, Jason Robards, Steve Buttenberg is in it, I believe, right. as well. 
and um, the kind of general story is that the war, you know, the, the war breaks out. So it actually really mirrors actually the kind of scenario of Overlarcher that war breaks out between NATO and the Soviet Union, and then um, the Soviet, after the Soviet Union begin a, a sort of military build-up in East Germany, and then the situation escalates into a nuclear war, which is actually what happened in the Overlarcher kind of simulated um, scenario. Scarily prescient, yeah, really. <laughs> it really is, a, but but for some reason it focuses then specifically on how how this kind of affected the town of um, Lawrence, Kansas, in the US. So it's really mm. a good film, and um, he he writes in his diary about this film, and he says that it. He, I'm quoting here. He says it was very effective, and left me greatly depressed. Um, and then he also writes that it changed his mind on the prevailing policy um, of a nuclear on nuclear war. Um, and apparently the film was also um, screened for the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Um, and, you know, I think it really did have a great impact. Yeah. So, so Reagan actually wrote in his diary that that film changed his view on nuclear, yeah. on the mutually assured dis- destruction concept yeah wow. yeah he said that um you know it, it i think it really brought home to him what what could what could happen and then when abel archer nearly yeah. happened and he was warned about that after the event i think it really really hit yeah. him yeah and, uh, um, so we've got jason robards to thank for the um <laughs> prevention of yeah. nuclear <laughs> yeah. of nuclear war wow Okay. Yeah, I mean, there's kind of like a there's kind of like a sort of urban legend going around that apparently um, that Reagan apparently sent um, a telegram um, to I think the director saying that um, you know that his his film had such a great effect on him, but then I read that that's actually a myth and um, that's not actually true. So um, I don't well, know, I- but actually. It also had an impact outside of the US because uh, apparently um, in 1987 um, the film was shown on Soviet television as well. Okay. Yeah, during during the you know Perestroika. um, Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm really surprised. I mean, hearing that diary entry from Reagan is um, is really interesting. Uh, Yeah, that's you know that really surprised me as well. Yeah. Where can people find you online? Okay, I'm. I'm. I don't have a website, but um, I am on Twitter. Um, my my handle is um, at Cold War Fran. Brilliant. That's a great handle. That. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I didn't when I, I you know I didn't really know what to call myself, and I I like the cold. I'm interested in the Cold War. So. <laughs> yeah. Francesca, thank you very much. No problem. You're welcome. Thank you. Well, that's it. I hope you enjoyed our chat and found the content interesting. I certainly found it very fascinating. There's extra information in the show notes. The show notes can be found at coldwarconversations.com slash the word episode and the number 19. If you like what you're listening to, then do join our vibrant Facebook group. Just search Cold War Conversations. And please do leave reviews with your podcast provider. Thank you very much for listening and supporting the podcast. It is very much appreciated. Goodbye.
not enjoying the ads? Well, you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. By becoming a monthly or annual supporter, you'll enjoy ad-free listening, become a part of our community, receive the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster, and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information.